Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Hey, you just got to be there. You got to serve to know this. I have stood before 200 men and women as a part of a formation of some 10,000 soldiers when I was in the 5th Infantry Division at Fort Polk, Louisiana, in the middle of summer on a parade field for a change of command of the commanding generals. And, and there was nothing like seeing the response of a simple command being given. First at the beginning of the formation, but then all the way down the ranks with each company command. I was a company commander. It'd begin, companies, you know, well, start battalions, right? Battalions. You'd hear in sequence, right, from battalions. Well, I'd start with brigades. Boy, you can tell I'm forgetting my life. But, you know, brigades. Next year is battalion. Then you'd hear company. Then you'd hear platoon. You'd hear it all the way down the rank. Attention. And, and instantaneously, boom. Everybody was at attention, just a snapping of command. There is nothing like that. Swift, synchronous, precise movement, snapping to attention, and to realize it was happening all over the field at the same time. And that's authority. See, that's authority. And this soldier of Rome, this centurion, he understood that kind of authority, and he saw it in Jesus. He saw it in Jesus. Now, in this crowd are most likely, as I said before, some of the Pharisees and some of the Sadducees. And we know they were there because, like I said, they've been following Jesus around. But, but these are men who were schooled in theology. They were trained in the scriptures. They knew all of the prophecies about the Messiah, and yet they didn't get it. Here's Jesus, the Messiah, right in front of them, speaking with authority, doing things with authority, and they don't get it. Nor did the vast majority of the people who were sitting under their teachings in Israel of the day. They knew Jesus did miracles, but they did not make the connection to his authority that this unclean Gentile centurion simply made and expressed. Now, clearly there were, as we look at this account, people who get it because they came to Jesus asking Jesus to help this man. But my guess is even they, did not fully appreciate what Jesus was truly able to do, the complete authority that he held in himself. But along comes this, this Gentile, this unclean centurion of Rome, and he gets it. Just speak a word, Lord, and I know, I know, I know it will be done. No wonder Jesus says what he says in the next verse. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Jesus says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that follow him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. That is a powerful, powerful, sad, but powerful statement. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He marveled. But at the same time, no wonder Jesus said this. I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Israel, the nation chosen by God to represent him in this world. Israel, the nation to whom the scriptures that reveal God were entrusted. Israel, 
the nation who gave birth to the prophets, the very prophets who spoke to of and, and pointed to the coming of Messiah in their prophecies, Israel, the nation that gave birth to Messiah. And yet in Israel, no faith as great as the simple faith that this unclean Gentile centurion of Rome is showing in this moment. Even Jesus' disciples weren't showing this kind of faith yet as this man showed. I believe that Jesus is actually pointing to this man as an example to his own disciples as well for them to see so that they'll learn what true faith really is and and learning the simplicity of what it truly is to understand Jesus's authority to comprehend what what that authority truly means what it's all about and to take your stand upon it to 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 believe that Jesus's word spoken is enough to command whatever it is he says to be done it says in the scriptures that from nothing God spoke things into existence and yet today, so many people have such a hard time with that concept that we have to create all kinds of scientific theories of theistic evolution. I have no problems with the six-day account of Genesis. I have no issues with that. Somebody will say, well, how could that happen? How can a man rise from the dead? How does that happen after being dead for three days? There's lots of things that are unexplainable in this world but if God says that he did that, I have no reason to doubt that he couldn't, with a single word, speak it all into existence. Let there be light. There be these things. And who did he do that through? He did it through the person of Jesus Christ, we're told in Colossians. It was through Jesus. Jesus is that actor, that acting agent of creation that did that, that brought these things to pass and pulled it all together and did that. And yet we have hard times with these things, you see. Jesus' word. You know, I fear too often that those of us who profess faith in Jesus oftentimes can show the least faith in him and the least belief in his authority. You know, like the people of Israel in Jesus' day, we know the scriptures. We, we even know the things about Jesus, but we sometimes fail to comprehend the authority, the full authority that he truly holds in and of himself and what that means for this world, for redemption, for us. I think that right now, as I watch all of the gyrations going on amongst Christians over our current situation, it tells me that we don't understand Jesus' full authority because somehow, as we watch everybody flipping out, it's almost like there's a belief. They'll say it's not true. I don't believe that. But if you listen to the words, it's not lining up with the true belief that God is in control of all things. He knew this day would come. He didn't wake up one morning, you know, crawl out of the celestial bed, the divine bed, and say, oh, my, I, I missed that. I didn't see COVID coming. I had no idea what it was going to do to the church. I had no idea what it was going to do to people's lives. I had no idea how it would just isolate them and upend them and do all this stuff. And he didn't do that. He knew very well. Was it his will to bring COVID into this world? No. We live in a fallen world that's been corrupted by sin, but he's allowed it to take its course, and he knew full well that 2020 was coming. I hate to think of what he knows coming in 2021. I'm convinced it's either aliens, asteroids, from reading the tabloids, you know, it's either aliens, asteroids, or we're all going to turn into zombies from the vaccine. It's one of the ones, right? But, you know, the point being is that what comes, comes. The Lord, no, that doesn't mean we need to throw care to the wind. It doesn't. But it can say we can be about our Father's business because we know our Father is in control of things. It's nothing has lost his sight. You know, 
we need to know that when he speaks the word, that we can stand upon it. We can believe it. When we read in the scriptures that Jesus says this, or something about our lives, that this is what I desire for you. Love one another, right? Do good to those who persecute you, right? That we can take our stand upon that because it's, there's authority in that. We can take our stand and our belief upon it for our lives and for the lives of others. We need to know and believe that his simple command, you know, that the armies of heaven, with his simple word, the armies of heaven will instantaneously snap to attention should he give it, as well as the situations in our lives. Do you know that right now, I believe this with all my heart, Jesus, with one spoken word in one spoken second, could stop everything that's happening. He could stop it right now. And people say, well, I don't know why he doesn't. I don't know why he doesn't either. But I'd say, what's he growing you in, in the midst of this? Or at least, what's he trying to? What's he trying to do when you have a suffering friend that's got nothing to do with, but they're dying of something, some, you know, my friend who died of cancer, you know, here at the church, watching him go through that was tough. And I wondered, you know, with all the prayers that he stood upon promises of God, but you know what? The promises of God, when it comes to healing, sometimes we overstate those as well, too. We are promised healing, just not always in this life. It's a guarantee. The thing I always look at is asking according to his will. And I look at so many scriptures as I laid out for you before of the people in scripture who didn't get healed that maybe are not mentioned, but we know that Jesus didn't heal everybody and, and he didn't resurrect everybody to life or nobody would ever die. And we know that didn't happen. So why not? I don't concern myself with that because he chose not to. But what I do concern myself is what is he doing with us when we're in the midst of these things? My friend who is dying of cancer I saw at the end of his journey true faith. I saw him believing the truth of the Lord, but in the end he looked at me and said, well, I know this. I know beyond the shadow of doubt that I will stand complete in him and completely healed one day, but I don't think he's going to do it in this life any longer. I've resigned myself to that truth. Now, did that mean that he closed the door for God to do a miracle? Absolutely not. You know, he knew that he saw and he was hearing from the Lord and the Lord was saying, I'm bringing you home. And he told me that. He said, I believe the Lord has told me he's bringing me home. But his faith never wavered. If anything, his faith was getting stronger all along the way. He knew that when the Lord would speak, he could be true to his, he could be counted on him being true to his word. He knew that when the Lord would speak, the armies of heaven would instantaneously snap to attention, let alone the events of this world and the circumstances of our lives. And even more than just knowing that about the circumstances around that, we do need to know that as good soldiers in Jesus that we need to step, snap to attention when he commands us in his word. As I said before, whatever it is that he speaks to you from his word, love your neighbor. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's do good to those around you that persecute you. I don't know. But whatever it is, we need to get to that place where we're not questioning his command any longer, but we're simply saying, as you will, Lord, as you command me, Lord, your word is my command. How much I believe we would see. <laughs> How much stuff we would see, uh, just God being able to do with us and around us if we would just simply have that kind of 
unquestioning obedience and trust and how much better our lives would be if we could simply grasp the extent of Jesus's authority and take our stand by faith upon it like this centurion is doing. Oh my, how it would change everything in our lives. Everything in our lives. Amen. Before we move on to the next section, I want to back us up and I want to talk about something in here. Let's look at this passage as a whole again, and then you'll see why I'm doing that. But look at what he says. He says, now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation has built us a synagogue then Jesus went with them and when he was already not far from the house the centurion sent friends to him saying to him Lord do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you but say the word and my servant will be healed for I also am a man placed under authority having soldiers under me and I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it when Jesus heard these things he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him I say to you I have not found such great faith not even in Israel and those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick we focus so much on that entire passage which we should do because it is this account is about this man but as I mentioned to you you know there's a divine setting to this whole thing I think there's a divine setting even things to be considered to where this took place you know in verse 1 it told us that when he concluded all of his sayings that he in the hearing of the people he entered Capernaum you know this is when he completed the sermon to the people that were gathered on the plane that we'd been looking at in the previous chapter, right? He finished that, and Luke tells us that he then moved on and came to this city of Capernaum, where then he encounters this man. But as we've dug into this event, I also want you to note something that clarifies a couple of really important points, the things we've discussed before to some degree. This same event that we just looked at is also covered in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. It's the same event. But in that passage, you will note something that Matthew tells us that set the stage for this particular event that's covered in the passage. Here's what Matthew said in verse 1 of chapter 8. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Matthew, if you picked it up, described this event taking place when Jesus had come down from the mountain. In other words, it's an event that took place immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, which places this event here in Luke at the same point in time. This is the same event that we just looked at being described by both the gospel writers. So the coming down has to be exactly the same. That's the so what to this. I mean, this also tells us that this sermon, which Luke records preceding this event that we were looking at and I was referring to as the Sermon on the Plain, which many people do, it is the same sermon. It is the same location as the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, I raised that question before and said, I kind of think it's the same, but it doesn't matter because Jesus did repeat his messages. But now I want to make the point to you, I do believe we have good reason to believe it was exactly the same sermon that was being done. The Sermon on the Plain in Luke is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. It's not two different sermons at two different locations, but it's the same sermon at the same location being described differently 
by Matthew and Luke. While Matthew describes it taking place on a mountain, Luke is more specific by telling us that it took place on a level place, on a level place, as he came down from the top of the mountain where he had just selected the 12 apostles. But Luke's description simply means that he stopped and gave the sermon on a level place on the mountain as he was coming down. I mean, he was in a different location. It's the same place. He's just coming down. He's just letting us know that he stopped on a level place on that mountain as he came down. Luke's account of what Jesus shared is also more abbreviated than Matthew's. But again, he's recording the same sermon and not a different one. Keep in mind, unlike Matthew, and this is important as we move through the, the gospel of Luke, you know, unlike Matthew, Luke wasn't present when Jesus did these things. Let's keep that in mind. You know, he wasn't present when he did these things. He is simply compiling a summary of the events and teachings, you know, through research and interviews with the other disciples and compiling this account for his friend Theophilus. So it's going to look different than the other Gospels where the Gospel writers were absolutely present. Now, that does not mean that this account is any less inspired. It is equally inspired. The Holy Spirit is in it all, but it's just a different perspective of the same events that the Holy Spirit is now using Luke to convey to us. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 8 is the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, which this follow-on event that we just looked at reveals. And, and, And in both accounts and at the same point in time, and in basically the same sequence of events, it flows. It matches right up. And if these accounts weren't describing the same sermon, it wouldn't change the overall message, but it would create a scriptural conflict. And I hope you see that. It would create a scriptural conflict because the event that we're now, we just studied on this centurion, what are the chances that there would be two centurions who went through the same thing exactly the same way? Highly unlikely. Now, I think it's important that we know the answer to this potential conflict because these are the kinds of things people point out as discrepancies in their Bibles to you. They will come to you and say, well, you know, Matthew gives an account of centurion over here, but, but over in Luke, he's talking about it here, but Luke's doing it on a plane, and, and over there it's in a mountain. So you see the Bible doesn't line things up. No, now no, you know the answer to that. And you should be able to give that to people if they challenge that. And so I just wanted to point that out to you because I thought that was rather important. It seems like a trivial point, but at the same time, it's important. Here's the second thing I want you to note in this. Look again at verse 1. Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Jesus, again, when he's coming down and he begins to move again, he comes to this town, Capernaum, again, not to this accidental encounter with the centurion, but he's, he's encountering as the Lord had laid it out, but Capernaum. I want to talk about Capernaum for just a moment. You know, Capernaum is a beautiful beach village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's where it's located. It's, it's sort of, in a lot of ways in the day, it would have been uh, an industrial town, but it also was a, a, a resort sort of town just because of its beauty. But, but the question becomes, what, Jesus is going to make this his base of operations. So we're going to see Capernaum come up a lot now. And, and why did he make it his base of operations? That's what I want to address for a moment. Several reasons. First and foremost, to fulfill prophecy. To fulfill prophecy. Matthew clearly indicates that Jesus' operation out of Capernaum was a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. This is Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. 
Matthew 4, 13 through 16. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Jesus being here was a fulfillment of prophecy. This was important. One of the things that Matthew did in his gospel is he spent a lot of time writing about the connections to the prophetic in the Old Testament scriptures, pairing them up, because Matthew, unlike Luke, was writing primarily to Jews to show them that Jesus was their Messiah that he was the long-promised Messiah. And so this is an important connection. This is the first and foremost reason why he would have set up home base there. Secondly, he's getting more speculative, but there's some basis to the speculation. Secondly, he would have set up operations there because it was the hometown and is the work center of several of the apostles. You see, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew all came from this town. They came from Capernaum, and by setting up shop in this city, it might have allowed these disciples to practice, with the exception of Matthew, but it would have allowed Peter, Andrew, and James to practice their fishing trade part-time to help raise support for the ministry work which they were engaging in with Jesus. Keep in mind, keep in mind, ministry work in the first century was often supplemented by part-time or even full-time secular work. It wasn't uncommon. Even the Apostle Paul worked at various times to support himself in ministry. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, and who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Paul was a tent maker. Paul worked at times in his ministry. Now, I point that out to you simply because there are a lot of God's servants today who believe that if they are called to serve the Lord, that they should be able to quit all forms of secular work and, and simply walk by faith and trust that the Lord will provide supernaturally for them in supporting them in their work of ministry for him. Now, without taking away from that desire, which is an absolutely appropriate desire, there's nothing in and of itself that's wrong for that desire, while it's always good to be able to devote yourself to full-time working for the Lord, ministry for the Lord, it does not mean that God intends for his servants to stop working in every situation. His provision oftentimes comes through the secular employment that God himself opens the door for so that they have the means of support for the ministry work that he's called his people to do for him. You know, I experienced that personally as I was transitioning into ministry. It was, you know, we didn't have a lot of plans for ministry when the Lord was calling me because I didn't, you know, it wasn't that I didn't have a desire to teach his word, but the truth was I didn't know I didn't see myself necessarily being called. From time to time, I'd mention, oh, maybe I'll be a pastor someday, but it was a, more of a tongue-in-cheek kind of jokey thing than anything else. I would hear people say it to me, 
but I never paid much attention to it. You know, I was a career army officer. And then when I left the army, because the Lord was calling me out, I just figured I was going to go to work someplace, you know, maybe work in, in, you know, the, the, uh, work as a contractor for the government. And, you know, I ended up, you know, going into a junior ROTC assignment here at Scotland school when it existed, uh, running their program there. And I, even then I, we didn't see the full extent of where this was all going to go. So unlike a lot of people, we didn't make a lot of plans. It wasn't like we couldn't have scaled down some, but the hard part was we had school bills, we had all kinds of stuff. And so as I transitioned in ministry and this began to happen, the work began to happen and people started coming and suddenly we're doing that. I knew I couldn't continue to work the way I was working at the school and do this. But at the same time, we knew that there still needed to be more finances that we had coming in, not so we could keep a life of luxury, but because we knew there were bills that still needed to be paid off that needed to be taken care of. And so the Lord provided, I ended up being a mobile therapist and a mobile counselor and behavioral specialist with kids for an agency. And I worked with per diem hours that I could structure myself and get out and have portions of the day where I could study, but other times when I had to be out on the job. And I look back on that and realize I didn't do that just because I had to. I look back and say, yep, it was the right thing. The Lord made provision for that. He, the provision he made was by opening the doors for me to be able to do that work. And so I understand this very clear. And while having to work a secular job while fulfilling a ministry calling, it, it can be challenging. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.